welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, a senior policy fellow here at ECFR, standing in for this podcast normal host, Mark Leonard. And this edition is part of a special mini-series we're doing on the end of the world, looking at how the liberal international order that we've known for the last few decades is being challenged breaking down, or perhaps being reinvented as something new and different. And today's guest is someone with a great deal of experience in how that order works, or perhaps now doesn't work in practice. Michael van der Schulenberg, a long-time international official with the UN and also the OSCE, who served among many other positions as UN Assistant Secretary General and also as Head of Mission in Sierra Leone and Iraq. And he's just written a book reflecting on his experience, and some bigger, wider questions about global governance that it raises. That book's called On Building Peace. So, Michael, you've seen how the international system should work and perhaps used to work and may not work so well anymore. Do you think it still makes sense to talk about uh, an international order that somehow is based on liberal principles now? Yeah, you know, the argument I make is that um, today more than ever, we need to go back to an international collective security system to deal with the issues today. But, you know, uh, Anthony, maybe let me come back to the title of, uh, you said, the end of the war. I mean, uh, the world, I mean, the world doesn't end, uh, luckily, and I'm not that pessimistic. But I would say where we are now, it's the end of an illusion. You know, the, uh, when the Berlin Wall fell in 89, I served in Afghanistan, and there was still Najibullah, pro-communist regime. And for me, it was, it's of course a huge event which shaped our world for today. And, uh, but for me personally, it was also a very personal thing, because I crossed the wall in 20 years earlier in 69. The strange thing only is that I was recently back in Afghanistan to do for the Security Council a uh, strategic review of what the UN should do in Afghanistan. And now, in 2017, Kabul is all of walls, four meters high, look just like the Berlin Wall. Only this time it's to protect the government and foreigners from the rest of the country. I mean, it's, um, if you think about it, in 2017, it's now democracy to build walls. You know, our big time started in 92, and now we build walls. We build walls in Israel, in Europe, against migrants and refugees, whatever I want to call it. I mean, real walls. And, 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 and we build walls in, in the United States. Even Obama already built walls. We have wall builders now. I mean, this, this is so symbolic. The wall coming down, opening up the winning of the liberal democracy thing, uh, thinking that's the end of history because we have now a system very easy, that, similar that the communists argued, that we have now the system which would sort of be the end stage of human society, how they organize and things like this one. And we are, what, 25 years later or 40, 30 years later, and now we are building the walls. And I think the system has turned out to be an illusion. Democracy so, will not go around the world. People will have their own systems. And I think we have to be very, very careful in the arguments we see, especially here in the media, 
that we compare our system and all the rest is authoritarian rules. It's not the case. I think rules are very different. They are historically built and things like this one. So I think we have to be very careful. I think it's end. And that it's not the end of liberal democracy in Europe or the United States. I don't think so. And I'm very much for it because that's what I was brought forward. But it's the end of the this, of this thought of 92 that we have won the competition with the last system communism has collapsed and now we were the economic power, we were the military power, and we were the only ideology left. And all countries would tell, you know, look at the economists with their, what is it, freedom index, I forgot now what it's called, you know, the sort of tick board, how many countries become now democratic. I mean, the tick board has gone backwards. Uh, we have, uh, and, and it's not working. And we have hugely discredited liberal democracy outside the Western world, hugely. We have now 25 years constantly war somewhere to, to state building, and none of them we have won. We will also not win the war against CIS, I'm absolutely convinced. Uh, I mean, winning in the sense of having a system after which we're just stable. Uh, and I think that's the situation today. It's, 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 it's very complicated. Uh, without the dominance of the West, uh, I think we will have now, many people speak about the multipolar system, and I think it's not only the big powers, maybe like China or Russia even, but, but also many regional powers. You know, we think about... Uh, Turkey, for instance, or Saudi Arabia, maybe even Iran. The world has become far more complicated. And, uh, and this, and this sister system is, of course, the UN the perfect body because it was created for countries with very different, at the time, even far more different things like communists and things like Stalin, don't forget this. So, so are you saying that, in a sense, the, the mistake was the idea that we could run the international system according to our values of liberalism, and now we need to maybe go back to some sort of international system that's less based on these you know, liberal principles which are ours, but maybe which don't fit the rest of the world? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, we have, it was an illusion. It was an illusion. You know, it has something to do with peace, the argument for peace. Uh, when you go back to the time and you read literature about the things, the, uh, the hope was that with liberal democracy introduced into states that are failing, these states would not need any more interstate wars because you would through compromise, through elections, through a legal system based on a constitution, conflicts could be solved. But it has not worked anywhere. The other things we assume that uh, countries which are liberal democracies liber doesn't fight liberal democracy, which also turned out in history of not being true. So I think we have really to rethink how we want to organize the world. And I would even go one step further in saying today's problems have also changed. You know, the UN Charter was created to prevent wars among states. But wars among states almost don't exist. The first time actually in human history don't exist anymore. Today, everybody who dies in, in an armed conflict or is a refugee or a displaced person is due to interstate conflicts. Unfortunately, many internationalized, but they are basically conflicts within countries or several countries within countries. And this, is, of course, is a completely new form of conflicts for which we have no international law, including not under the UN or not the Charter. So your solution is not to, as it were, go back to the original principles of the UN um, as it was after 1945, but to move forward to a new kind of international system. It's not sort of to, to get rid of Western hubris and go back to a traditional collective security system, but it's some new collective security idea. 
I think the first thing, I mean, we see that now with the treatment with North Korea now, we have to ab abolish our hubris that we can, with our military force, force people to do what we want. It will not happen. And it will also not happen in North Korea. And um, I would say the first step is that we have to recognize the UN Charter as it is. The UN Charter, the core element of the UN Charter is not to use military force or even not to use the threat of military force for political aims. Now, open the newspapers today. Every day we see that, that, that we fight somewhere, that we threaten somebody. I mean, it's, the Charter doesn't exist anymore. And we have to accept, and that is so difficult for us, that the undermining of the UN Charter did not happen during the Cold War. It happened after 92. And it was undermined by the West by thinking that we have a superior system, that we could now be the judgment to go to war and not to war, that we are the good guys who, who, who help things. We shouldn't forget all the American operations are called Operations Freedom. Enduring freedom, uh, Iraqi freedom, and things like this one. I mean, there is this ideological thing behind it that we bring freedom and, and, and prosperity to, to people. All the things which has not happened. So, first step is, and that is a step for the West, quickly, and uh, we have to accept the UN Charter and we have to go back to that. Um, the second one is that we have to accept that the threat scenario has changed. We have now a triple threat scenario. It's not anymore our fight with Russia and China. I think these fights over the islands is really a 19th century sort of conflict. I mean, what is this? I'm sorry for this expression, but these little islands, what are they? I mean, from how we blame having military bases, 10,000 uh, in the world, and we don't want China to have one. I mean, it's a sort of ridiculous thing for me. Compared to the problem we have, that we have soon 12 billion people in the world. And this is, creates a triple problem which we have already today. It's collapsing nation states, the rise of non-armed non-state actors, also, or generally non-state actors, which are not controlled by any, 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 uh, any agreements, and of course, visit them the interstate wars. And this is something for which we are not prepared. When the Charter was uh, agreed in '45, interstate wars, although they existed, there were revolutions, things like this one, did not exist. But today, it is a dominant factor. Everybody dying today, everybody becoming a refugee or things is due to interstate wars. It is a dominant factor. And it, my, of course, it's the future. My guess is with the pressure, I was just recently in the Sahel, you know, with a population which is, uh, you know, 50% under 15 or 16 years old, uh, with no water, with no land and no agriculture, uh, you know, this is going to be our big problem. Compared to this one, the problem we have about the Crimean Peninsula is actually peanuts, it's ridiculous actually almost in comparison. This is our challenge. I mean, if also this one, these two things is something we have to address to the West. First, accept the national the UN Charter, and secondly, accept that the threat scenario is a different one and don't play Cold War again. So you're, you're calling for an international order which does look and get involved quite deeply in the internal affairs of states around the world, but doesn't do it on a kind of Western-led liberal basis. So what would be the basis then of the kind of international action that's delving into the internal affairs of states and getting involved in these intrastate wars, which you say are the, you know, yeah. very persuasively are the biggest problem we face. 
You know, the answer we had after 92 was, of course, peace building, what we call peace building. And we have to say that was always liberal peace building. No? We wanted to do elections, we wanted to give them a constitution and uh, introduce a, a free market economy and things like this one. I think we have to agree that this doesn't work like this. I mean, liberal uh, peace building has, in my view, and I've done it all my life, has nowhere worked. I mean, uh, 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 satisfactory work. And the, um, no, I think we have to tackle this problem on a political level, not on a mechanical level that we have a pattern of solution. We have to come back to think that interstate conflicts are political problems. And for this one, we have to create political norms. The first thing is, of course, you know, when can we intervene in interstate? That raises a question of sovereignty. And the book I make a suggestion to differentiate between national sovereignty and state sovereignty. National sovereignty you can't touch, but the state can lose its sovereign rights to, to govern so to, because of certain criteria. You know, you have, to, you have to regulate arms shipments. I mean, I've come just back from Afghanistan. Afghanistan is filled with weapons. Taliban, 20 other opposition groups, the government, militia groups, warlords are back again. I mean, 95% of these weapons come from the West. I mean, Afghanistan has never produced a single bullet it themselves. It's come all from the outside. I mean, why don't we regulate this a little bit? Maybe, maybe, maybe they fight each other in future with knives, but it wouldn't be, wouldn't be as dangerous as it is today. These are things we have to think what means, for instance, uh, it's part of the uh, introduced, actually, by Trotsky first and then taken up by Wilson, self-determination. Actually, communist term origin. We forget this always. Uh, and uh, self-determination. What do we mean by that one? Why self-determination in Kosovo and not in the Crimean Peninsula? I'm, I'm not judging whether one or the other one is right. I don't want to do this. But I mean, it's a, things we could sort of regulate rather things. We know that borders, national borders, change all the time. I mean, look at history books and these things that change all the time. It will also in the future. I mean, Spain might have very soon a separate uh, Catalonian. I don't know. How does it work? I mean, how do we do that in a peaceful way? And this has to be regulated. So it's a political approach to conflicts rather than a technical approach to what type of government a state should have. There's quite a difference. Mm, I can see that. When, but when you talk about the differentiating between the, the state and the nation, um, you know, that could be rather reminiscent of the notion of responsibility to protect where the, the government loses its legitimacy if it's not looking after Definitely. its people. But many people would see that as precisely the incarnation of the kind of Western liberal approach that you're critiquing. You know that you don't kill your own people, you don't have to be a Western liberal. I guess a Chinese, an African, Latin American would answer the same thing. I mean, you my, my have been to so many countries. If it comes to basic principle of human rights, Funny enough, all society, Muslim societies, I mean, it's not that we have, uh, they have values too. And there are certain values which are quite universal. The only thing is that they don't believe us, that we have the values. They say we are hypocrites. I mean, look at Iraq. I mean, maybe not so wrong. Uh, so I think we have to go back to these things. And I think, so in some protection of, of civilians, is surely one thing which determines whether a state has a right to govern or not. 
to what degree we do that, in what forms it's been discussed, but it would prevent these unilateral interventions which we have now so many. It would prevent these regime change uh, financing, for instance, the Crimean 15 billion for having a so-called revolution. I mean, the West creating a revolution, I thought it was something from the East. But anyway, uh, I think we have to, we have to, because we know these things don't work, and uh, it's not, uh, I'm happy that everybody becomes a liberal democrat, but it will not happen, and I think we have to come to terms with it, and we, it has to change. So it's not, it's about maybe protecting people, but not imposing a political system. Yeah, right, absolutely. I think that if, democracy, I've seen a declining, I mean, I've been in all these countries, and peace building was always on the UN agenda, and I've seen a declining acceptance to that. You know, you have then these things with Ashraf Ghani, which basically, 30 years in the West, and he speaks our language, but acting he's doing actually quite differently, I think. And um, uh, that's not a criticism of him, but it's because he's living in this reality and he has to live with the Afghan reality. No, we have been discredited, our system, partly because we brought it by military means, uh, partly because we helped uh, groups, uh, uh, corrupt groups to come to power, and we called it democracy. Poroshenko comes immediately to mind, or in Afghanistan, they have the worst human rights abusers in the government side, and, you know, uh, and uh, I mean, we, we do terrible choices there and call it all democracy. I mean, that's, uh, and we get these rich people. We get people that get filthy rich by, by having a Western system suddenly. Uh, people who don't want to live, their families often don't live in the countries anymore and things like this. But this has all discredited the system. It's a great pity. On the other hand, I must say, I think if we come to interstate principles, I think many of the Western liberal values will flow into the things. But I hope it will flow in a way of not being imposed by us but by everybody agreeing that certain values are universal. And I think that uh, by all criticism I have now in post-92, we shouldn't forget that, like the Roman Empire, we have, uh, we ha although I think we are history in many ways, uh, that we have developed many things which, are, uh, which will be preserved. No? And, um, uh, and, and I think the UN is a place of preserving it. Hmm. Can when, I say something also yeah. on the UN? Because that was your question. You see, we often have a tendency to say the UN has failed. But if you look at the hard facts, it's actually quite the opposite. You know, for anybody in the world living today, his or her chance to be killed in an armed conflict or war is about 2%, maybe 3 4 I say in the book, up to 5%, because I'm not sure that this decision will clump down on me and I'm better numbers. It's tiny compared to 1950. When you take all the average people killed from on the database, uh, you know, from uh, Uppsala uh, conflict database uh, program, uh, if you take the last 10 years of people killed in conflicts, the average, it's less than the people who were killed in a single battle in two, World War II and World War I. That was what the UN was created for. If you look today, especially after 92. We have hardly any interstate wars where army fights army, state fights states, or states association fight each other. It doesn't exist anymore. The last two were the Gulf Wars. Um, and they were very short. Uh, it, it, interstate wars among states, not, of course, for the atomic bomb, for other, many other reasons, but also because we have a legal, legal body for that one. It restrains 
states to act like this. Yeah. And I think when you look at these two things, these are so hugely successful for the UN. Mm. I'm not talking about individual what peacekeepers rape there or something like this, but I'm talking about the agreement among member states on certain issues, and we should not abandon it. And what we have done in the last years from the West to say we have a better system, we don't ignore, we ignore that, is really, really, I think, is almost criminal. Yeah, it's legal. It's criminal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yet you know sometimes, and I, you know, I agree with you. People talk about you know very loosely about oh the UN has failed and so on. But and yet you know I think when you look at the conflict in Syria, which I know you look at in your book. Um, you know, often people say the UN has been effectively powerless. This is the defining conflict of, you know, of the last few years, and the UN hasn't been able to deal with that. Um, and this is a classic example of the kind of internal conflict becoming internationalized that you say is the, the biggest threat we face. Yeah. You know, what would be a, a kind of, just to give people a sense of how an alternative international order might the, deal the, with something I mean, like this. I think the Syrian conflict is a perfect example for the failure of the international community to expand the UN Charter to conflicts within states. I mean, Syria, the interstate conflict basically takes place in a lawless, international lawless environment. Everybody can justify it, everybody can do it. It's not like between states. There is basically no rule for it. The Charter has explicitly excluded the UN to get involved in intrastate issues. And we do it now through the back door of being invited by a government or whatever, which is very questionable. Right. Very, very questionable because oh. Article 51 doesn't say to, to get involved in internal opposition things. We have to find a different thing. And I think it's possible. It's possible. I mean, I'm often attacked on this one. You see, oh, we have all these conflicts here between Russia and, you know, look at Putin and blah, blah, blah. I mean, people like Putin here very much. And um, uh, China. You know, when you look at 1945, the five big powers who agreed on such huge things of not using the military anymore, had never existed in human history, on the, on the human rights, on the refugee conventions, these are three things which are, have never, never existed in human history, and we, we agreed on it. And the five big powers, one was run by a mass murderer, Stalin, one was by Chiang Kai-shek, uh, a general who was extremely brutal in the civil war with, with Mao Zedong and lost it in the end, or, or, except for an island. Uh, we had the United States. The United States was largely an apartheid country in, in 1945. I mean, white were not allowed to marry blacks and all the rest, not sit on the same bench. I mean, it was a brutal apartheid regime mm -hmm. until 64. I mean, nonetheless, they agreed on the human rights, which actually says it should be. And, uh, and then, of course, we had the two colonial powers of France and England, who still thought they, they had the superior right as a superior civilization to run a rule over 100 millions of other people. And nonetheless, they agreed. And they agreed out of fear of another world war. And I think today, these states are much closer in their perspective. If, I mean, if we would cut off some of the media hype, uh, much closer. Uh, I think the difference between uh, Russia and the United States today or China is far less than, uh, than it was at the time. And, uh, and at this time, we should make this agreement for fear of a global chaos. You know, when you look at the Fund for Peace, 
they estimate from the 180 countries, I don't know exactly the number, they, they look at these range, they have them sustainable and very sustainable and then uh, weak or fa fa failing and alert or something. On the bad side is 78% of all countries. They're somehow, they I mean, it's of course also politically motivated, these indexes, but we have a huge problem of states failing today. Huge, huge, huge problem. Mm -hmm. And the vacuum will be taken by non-state actors, and they are uncontrollable. And they might not be even Islamists, they might be all sorts of crime organization, might be, again, pro-communist regimes, might be secessionist regimes, might be like, like in Iraq, militia groups. I mean, the army in Iraq is, is run by militia groups, not by a real army. And these, these are things which, we, which is extremely dangerous. And I think what we see in Europe presently, the migration crisis and the, uh, and the terrorist, which is, uh, is, is only a tip of an iceberg which comes towards us. And the problem is we are partly, and I would even say greatly to blame for this development. And that has to be, has to be reversed. We have to see ourselves uh, accept that we are part of the problem, big part of the problem. And we have to accept that many people we bedevil today, like Putin and so on, are part of the solution. They must be part of the solution. If we don't do that, we will really go into trouble. So in a case like Syria, that would perhaps mean that we should have adopted less of the kind of political stance at the beginning, that we're not going to deal with Assad, that he has to be out of the picture, and looked for something that would be more of a a viable compromise between you know, the groups that we naturally supported on the basis of principle and the groups that Russia supported. Is that, is yeah. that right? I mean, I, mean, I don't want to talk... I mean, I know quite a lot about Syria because yeah. it was in Iraq and, and how it developed. It's not the narrative we see in the okay. newspapers. I mean, we could... We but, could but I want to say, you know, I give you... A, maybe for those who listen, I think it's you. If you all remember the picture of this little boy, I think it was Omayet or something, I forgot his name now, who sit in the back of an ambulance car, you know, blood over the things and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and the, the picture we saw every news again, and or even when Trump and Clinton sort of had their debate, this picture was brought in. Now this boy and his father is now on the Assad side. And they say the Russian did the right thing. You know, I'm not saying that they are right or thing, but I'm saying these conflicts are so much more complicated. If somebody says to me today, that probably the majority of Syrians would vote for Assad rather than to any of the other groups because they are religious intolerant and blah, 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 blah. Not because they love him. But I think there might be some truth to it. It is a terrible thing that we in Washington or in Berlin want to choose what type of government one has in Syria. It's a real, real problem. And for this one, we have to have other principles how we go about these conflicts. Mm. And the principle would be based on uh, some sort of combination of the balance of forces on the ground with some central principles that you think there could be international consensus about. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this brings, of course, how you, peacekeeping troops getting into in, interstate conflicts, which for which they are not, because already the name peacekeeping is wrong, because they've been sent into countries where there's no peace. I mean, they were supposed to enforce a peace, but we don't want to say it because then it, you know, it becomes an ideological problem with the UN Charter, so we call them still peacekeepers, although since 92 we have no peacekeepers anymore. But give it only a number. It's the lowest estimate of what the NATO operation has cost us in Afghanistan is $1 trillion. It's the lowest estimate. Some go three, even four. 
and things like that. There is no clear number. And NATO has lost it. I mean, we lost the war in Afghanistan. Let's come from there. We lost it. We have none of our aims we have achieved. We can maybe prevent that the Taliban take over the cities, but, but otherwise we have not won it. And we will have to go as a loser. I mean, there will be no option to this. So NATO wasn't very good in this. If you take the money NATO has cost, we could have paid for all 16 peacekeeping operations of the UN for 140 years. 140 years we could have the same peacekeeping. Peacekeeping like this one. And there's another number. If you think how many people the NATO operation killed in Afghanistan, it's civilians also. There are many fault more than all peacekeeping troops ever killed in their history since 1948. This we have to think about it. Maybe peacekeeping is not perfect, but I think to say that NATO is a better option, that I find very hard to believe. We're coming to the end of our time. <laughs> you smile. Big on the Could table you still here. smile? How do you see the future then? We ask people sometimes in these podcasts to, to complete the sentence, the liberal international order is, what would you say? No, I, this I can't answer. I believe that we in the West will have to continue the liberal order. I'm, 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 I'm a Democrat. I, I, I strongly believe it is for us. But, uh, but what has come to an end is our belief that we can implant this in other countries and especially implant it through military means. So what we have to do, we have to find a political solution to the new threat scenarios. And that is not so difficult as long as we, we come down from our big horse that we still think that we are the, the rulers of this world. And, so the, and this is a political solution that can be built on international consensus among the leading powers rather than simply, a, a, as it were, the political yeah, values the, of one for, side. For the time being, not. But I, be, but, but I think that, uh, you know, when you look back at, as I just said in '94, how difficult it was to come to an agreement. I mean, we are today much closer. I mean, why can't we agree today? At that time, the fear was another third world war that we agreed on the UN Charter, and now that should be the fear of, of, of descending into global chaos. That's a real threat. And how dangerous it is, you see in the population increases. We will have, by the end of this century, up to 12 billion people on this earth, of which all will be in countries which are not Western, the increases. You know, now the West maybe represents only 10% of the global population. Then it might be only 5%. And even in our own countries, we have sizable population groups which don't believe in the same system because they are culturally coming from different backgrounds, which is not, it's not bad, you know. But, but we have to realize how little our system, which we think is all global and things like this one, it has actually, has actually support. I mean, is, uh, it might be some intellectuals or people who studied in the States and things like that, although the Iranian Revolution was mainly made by people studying in the United States. No? Mm -hmm. I speak fluently American English when I was in Iran. <laughs> yeah. So we can, we can hope that the, the, the fear of greater chaos is going to concentrate our minds and make us recognize what uh, all act. the countries have, we have in to, common. We have to accept it. I mean, it's unbelievable that today we spend a, in a year about a trillion dollars on military equipment, which we only would only need in the case of a war among states, where the real problem is that people in the science zone don't have water to drink. 
and there will be lots of young people. And where do they look at? They look at Europe, of course. They want to survive. You can't blame them. Let's use one atomic bomb and build some water supply systems. I mean, we have the technology for the things. We going for the wrong threat scenario. That is very dangerous. That's a good note to end up. Thank you very much. Okay, lovely.